0: Good morning. Good morning. You got to push that button down there. I do. I forgot to push it. Well, how's everybody doing today? Good to see you here. How's your summer going? We are in the summer and having a great time. Lots of things happening outside. Hopefully you're able to enjoy some of it. My wife and I were out of town last week and last weekend. We were in New Orleans on Sunday, actually Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, for an army thing, and um, it was a good experience. It was good. You know, we were told before we went that it was a dark place, and I think if we had been out in the dark, it would have been a really dark place, but there's a lot of history there. We took a bicycle ride around Bourbon Street and all that those places, and there were some things I didn't want to get close to, like big snakes and stuff, but... It was a good experience. We worshiped last Sunday with the Journey Christian Church right there in the outskirts of New Orleans. If you ever get down there, I highly encourage you to worship with this little, uh, about 75 to 100 people. The preacher and his wife are graduates at Kentucky Christian. And it was a great, uh, great little service. Great, great service. So uh, we worshiped there last Sunday. And then we flew to Myrtle Beach. We flew to Myrtle Beach. And uh, Surfside Beach, and had a great time down there with family, 20 of us. That's not all of us. My kids didn't go. There would have been 28. I don't have eight kids, but they all married, and and there's some kids. So we had a great time. And you know, there's a new restaurant at the beach. The restaurant at the beach is called Peace and Quiet. (laughs) On the window, there's a sign that says, kids' meals, only $100 each. you get that? <laughs> now we're in a series called Soul Care, Finding Inner Peace. And we need peace, don't we? We need inner peace. Last uh, few weeks, we've talked about anxiety and grief. And I just want to say again, I said this in the first service, <clears throat> Philip did a great job here last Sunday preaching on grief. Uh, you know, Philip and Julie have been through a lot of grief. They lost their pre-born son, Noah a couple months ago and uh, Philip had lost his brother a f- couple years ago and uh, some grandparents and even since that sermon, Julie lost her grandfather that was instrumental in leading her to faith. So sometimes grief hits you all at once and sometimes it's spread out over a lifetime but the thing about it, it's inevitable, isn't it? We're going to, if we live long enough, we're going we're gonna to feel that emotion So I thought Philip did a great job. You can go back and listen to either one of those messages or both those messages and and get some help for your troubled soul. You may have a troubled soul because of anxiety or grief. And so, uh, by all means, don't don't suffer alone. That's why we exist as the body of Christ. Amen? Brothers and sisters and family, we need to... We need to come together and help one another, and we need to allow others to help us, and that's the big thing about grief. Sometimes we have the temptation to withdraw, but we need to uh, go through that quickly and get back and let the body of Christ help us out. Well, this morning, we're going to shift gears a little bit. We're going to shift gears a little bit, we're going to talk about some spiritual practices. Some would call them spiritual disciplines, spiritual, a spiritual practice today and then one next week that will help your troubled soul. Because let's be honest, sometimes our soul is troubled because of what life does to us, what life throws at us, a situation or a circumstance outside of our control. But sometimes our soul is troubled because of a decision we make, because of sin in our life. It might be a bad choice. It might be a bad decision that has a rippling effect on us. And so our soul is troubled. We're going to jump right into a story today, one of the most famous stories in the Bible, to see how this uh, spiritual practice of confession, see see why it matters, and why, as some say, confession is good for what, for the soul. Confession is good for the soul. Now we're going to we're going to. Wind up in Psalm 51 if you're using your Bible app or your hard copy Bible. But we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 11 because that's where the story uh, kind of begins for us today. 2 Samuel chapter 11. <clears throat> and the first five verses read like this In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Reba, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that's his house, that he saw from the roof of a woman bathing and the woman was very beautiful and David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is not this Bathsheba the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant." Now, no doubt you're familiar with the story of David. He really is one of, if not the main character of the Old Testament. It kind of feels like the whole Old Testament is pointing to David. But then David turns around and points to Jesus because Jesus came from the line of David. There's a lot of chapters. The Old Testament is consumed with the story of David, a lot of chapters and entire books that really talk about his life. And if you do remember him, you remember that he was just a shepherd boy, the seventh son of seven sons of Jesse and Mrs. Jesse. And uh, being the runt of the litter and ruddy, the Bible says he was ruddy, probably had maybe kind of reddish hair. Uh, that's where the, the word ruddy kind of refers to the color red. Uh, like Esau was kind of ruddy. And so David was uh, a young guy, and he got the, you know, he got the, he got the, dirt jobs. You know, the older brother said, no, you're going to do it because we said so. And, and so he did, and he spent hours upon hours out in the fields doing what nobody else wanted to do, watching the sheep. Not a very exciting job, not most of the time, but for David, it did become exciting a couple times. David, no doubt, had practiced with his sling and stone. You've heard of him. He's famous for that. And he, uh, it is not a slingshot. Uh, this is a, a sling and stone where you do it like this, and then you release it. And David got so good at that that he became a formidable foe for anybody and any animal trying to take his father's sheep. Bible says he killed both a lion and a bear. Now, can you imagine the strength, the force of a of a stone that would he would have to release in order to hit? his target and the precision of his aim to kill that lion or bear i mean it, it takes a lot to bring down one of those but the bible says he did and it's an incredible part of his story and you also might remember since we're on the sling of the stone that david as the youngest one of the benefits of not of being the youngest is that he didn't have to go to war he stayed back but he delivered some care packages one day you remember this to his older brothers they 're fighting with the Israelite army on the front lines of fighting the Philistines, and the Philistines had a big champion that nobody could defeat. What was his name? Goliath, Goliath was out there, and as David walked up just as he was walking up, he heard the, he heard the the cursing and the defiance in the in this this big voice from the other side of the battlefield, and he didn 't like what he heard. He heard uh, disparaging remarks about his brothers and about this army and about his god so david said are you guys just going to stand around and let this happen And they're like david come on uh he's a giant and we're just normal people here we can't do anything about him he's killed so many of our people already david said well i'm going to do something about him and they said uh okay if you want to do that then here put on this armor and they tried to put king saul's armor now if you remember king saul was tall King Saul was tall, and David was not tall, and that just goes to show you it's not all about being tall, and it's better to have loved a short man than never to have loved a tall, amen? So David put this armor on, and he looked like, uh, you know, have you seen that movie, The Lord of the Rings, when uh, they put that armor on, and they couldn't hardly walk around, so David said, I don't need this stuff, I have the Lord in my sling. So he goes out and you know what happens next. He downs that Goliath. The Goliath said, are you coming to me like, a, like I'm a dog with sticks and stones? David said, I'm going to show you who's the dog. And, uh, <clears throat> and so the next thing, David is doing precision surgery on the neck with the giant's sword. And so David became famous. Saul took him into his home. He met Saul's Son Jonathan, they became best friends. They just they had a bond closer than nothing else and no other relationship. They were just close, good buddies. And you might remember that at some time during this point, Saul displeased God. And God told the prophet, uh, he told the prophet Samuel, he said, uh, Saul has displeased me. He's not going to be king forever. I'm going to have you anoint the king. And so go up to the house of Jesse. And you remember. Uh, uh, Samuel went to Jesse's house, and he thought, well, surely he's the oldest, and then the next, the next, and next, and next. God said, don't look at their appearance. Uh, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And I've chosen the young one. And he anointed david king but david had to wait years before he before he could serve as king and so he served in saul's household for a while and and uh, uh you know he, he became best friends with jonathan and they became close and eventually if you remember the story i don't have time to rehash it all but david did become king david became king and david served for 40 years as king the greatest king of israel he Solidified the borders of Israel. He put Israel on the map as a world power. He 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 made them who they were in the ancient world, and nobody would mess with them because David was such a warrior and a strategist, and he was so smart. He was a writer. He was uh, he he was uh, uh, just very influential. He was a, a fighter and a writer, and he had it all. He was a Renaissance man, and so David. <clears throat> served a long time and then this story interjects into David's life and it's a sad story evidently the winter had been a hard winter maybe it was cold and harsh and and David had some lingering cold in his bones and he decided I think this year I'm just gonna stay home because it was a time when kings go to war and And, of course, you know what happened. We read about it. David messed up, didn't he? And that's to put it lightly. The greatest moral failure of the Old Testament and of his life. It's a story of money and sex and power and lust and lies and plots and ploys to satisfy the flesh. It's a story of both anxiety and grief. And the Bible does not gloss it over. The Bible doesn't leave it out. It doesn't excuse it because that's the way the Bible is. It tells the truth and the whole truth and nothing but the truth. That's what the Bible does. And so this greatest king of Israel who was called when Samuel said, but why him? God said, because he is a man after my own heart. And this man after God's own heart had a great moral failure. What happened? From this time period of David's life, scholars believe that we got at least two psalms, and maybe more as we read through, Psalm 32, from which we read our focus verse, and also Psalm 51, which is where we're going to end up here shortly. But what happened to David? What happened? Well, first, he was in a place where he should not have been. He was in a place where he should not have been. He should have been out there on the battlefield. He should have been leading his... Soldiers, he should have been out there, but he wasn't out there. He should have been in an army uniform, but he was in his pajamas on the couch walking over the balcony, and I just want to give you some warning here today that if you're not careful, men especially, I want to talk to you today, you could end up in a place where you shouldn't be. A place where you're going to be more susceptible to sin, more vulnerable to temptation. You just shouldn't be there. When we were going to New Orleans, we talked to people last week about our trip, and three different people that we're close to told us, oh, it's a dark place. It's a dark place. We're like, oh, man. I had an army briefing there. I had to go attend that. And so I thought, there's a lot of history here, too. There's a lot of history here, so uh, we went to, for the history, and trust me, we we're not out after dark because after dark, it's a dark place. Even with all the lights and all the busyness and buzz and noise, we did take a bicycle ride around town. This guy got on there. Before we got in this little rickshaw, I said, is there a weight limit because your legs are a little bit skinny, pal? He said, don't worry about it. I do this all the time. And so we got in there and we rode all around. We would have not seen some of the places we saw. I recommend it. If you're ever in New Orleans, take the daytime rickshaw ride. Not a rickshaw, but a bike, bike taxi, I think they call it. And we saw some things and heard some things about the history. But you know what else we saw? We turned down one street. I think it was called Burr something. Bourbon Street, you got it. And uh, as soon as we turned the the corner, there was a big uh, bowl full of giant snakes. I mean, they were huge. And before I could say, hey, let's stop and hold one, that guy was gone. A lot of people there dressed like they shouldn't have been dressed. A lot of people doing stuff they shouldn't have been doing. A lot of people there mentally ill. It was a dark place, but man, I was glad for a journey Christian church shining the light in New Orleans. Be careful where you go, because you, you don't have to go to New Orleans to be in the wrong place. You could be here in St. Albans. You could be here in Charleston. You could be out of town somewhere on a business trip, end up somewhere you shouldn't be. And my advice to you is the same advice that Jenny gave Forrest Run, Forrest, run, or jump on a bike taxi and get out of there. Secondly, he was doing what he should not have been doing. He was the king. As the king, as I just said, he should have been leading his army. He should have been fighting the battle, or at least like one of those those old confederate generals, you know. They weren't out on the lines like the old ancient uh, the the ancient uh, Viking and and, uh, and other uh, armies, you know, the king was up front leading a charge. But in the Confederate, uh, you, you know, or in the in the Civil War days, the the North and South generals they stood up on a hill watching the battle. At least he should have been doing that. You remember David was a great warrior. Remember what they sang about David that made Saul so mad? They would sing, Saul has slain his but David has slain his tens of thousands, that's right. He was a great warrior, that's what he should have been doing out there with his army protecting and extending the borders of of his kingdom but instead he sent joab and he sent his servants and uh, it's funny to me that the text says all of israel in other words i think what the text is saying here what samuel is writing here is everybody was out there everybody that was somebody everybody that could hold a spear in their hands every archer every fighting man was out there but not david he wasn't out there he was back in his pajamas on the couch and third He looked too long where he shouldn't have let his eyes linger. There's an interesting Hebrew thing going on here in this passage. When the Bible describes this woman, it uses an adjective. It just puts the word very. She was very beautiful. Now, that's a little unusual for the Hebrew text to do this, but but what it's doing there, it's like doubled up on this. It's doubled down on this, and the adjective is like, she's just not beautiful. Like Esther in the Bible, I believe, was called beautiful. But this woman, Bathsheba, she was, as my friend in high school used to say, drop-dead gorgeous. She was stunningly beautiful. She was very beautiful. I don't know why the writer tells us this, except maybe he's saying, you know, David was, uh, he was set up in a trap. But was he really? Fellas, let me remind you that this is our everyday battle. And it's every man's battle. It's the battle of the eyes and the mind of lust and temptation. It's really the battle for our hearts and souls. Do you know how many men have lost their reputation, their family, their everything because of this battle, because they have lost this battle. And if you haven't noticed, we're living in some of the most immoral and indecent times ever recorded in the history of the earth. When we invite Hollywood right into our living rooms, and we gorge ourselves on the internet and social media, nothing seems off-limits today in terms of fashion and behavior. Are you with me? Men, we have to win this battle. We have to win this battle. Our reputation, our legacy, and our souls are at stake. And when you think about generational tendencies and sin, the souls of our kids... And grandkids are at stake. We have to win this battle. But David wasn't winning. David wasn't winning. He was lingering. He was lingering. You know, we were in New Orleans, and in New Orleans, there's a lot of skin showing. A lot of skin showing. Uh, A lot of skin showing, let me just say. And uh, then we do at Surfside Beach. Do you think there was any less skin showing at Surfside Beach? Not at all. Not at all. A lot of skin showing. And uh, it's, uh, it's not easy to win this battle. Not easy to win this battle. When you're smack dab in the middle of this feast for your worldly, fleshly eyes, we got to win this battle. we got to find a way to win it. David wasn't winning. He knew better. This is the same David who told the Lord, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Psalm 119.11. This is the same David who said, blessed is the man who walks in the counsel of the righteous and not in the counsel of the wicked. Psalm 11. He knew better. We often know better too, don't we? He was even warned. He was warned when the servant came back to report when David said, hey, go find out who that is. Servant came back and said, hey, this is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite, your soldier, the one who's out there on the front lines fighting your battles. That's whose wife this is. David, she's a married woman. She's a well-known married woman and her husband's one of your best soldiers and, and he's out there and you're back here just walk away walk away but David by this time was in the clasp of the trap Have you ever been there you ever been there you know it's wrong but it feels so right you know it's wrong but it feels so right right but it's wrong but it doesn't feel wrong does it it is wrong but it feels so right Somewhere in the back of my mind, there's a song that wants to get out, and I'm saying, get thee behind me song. It feels so right. And that's the way it is. Sin is deceitful. Sin is dishonest. And sin is destructive. And we're not just talking about your life. We're talking about a whole lot of people around you. Someone said that sin will take you where you don't want to go, sin will make you do what you don't want to do, and sin will keep you longer than you want to stay. So David took this woman into his bedroom. He did his deed, discharged his seed, and sent Bathsheba back to her place. Now there's some debate about what happened here, and the Bible kind of falls on both sides, it seems. We might have to dig a little deeper. The Bible says David saw her and took her, which seems to indicate that he took her by force. He, he used his power over her and took her. But the Bible also says, and she came to him. So most likely something was going on here where she's like, he's the king. I have to go. But she said, oh, he's the king. I get to go, and so David thought he had had this moment, this clandestine passion with this most beautiful woman, while all the men were away and all the servants were away, and surely he had gotten by with it. He was in the clear until a few weeks later. There's a knock on the door, and uh, the servant comes with a note, and he said, "This is from Bathsheba," and he read the note, and three words crushed him. I am pregnant, oh my, what am I gonna do now? Well, David did what a lot of us do when we sin, when we mess up, he, he did a lot of what we do, we try to fix it, he came up with a plan, he made up a story, he paid someone off, ha, have someone removed if need be. So you know the events that happened next, you can read about them in the last part of 2 Samuel 11, plan, he had a plan A, plan A was to bring Uriah in from the battlefield to bring him in from the battlefield and uh, say, hey, you deserve a rest, man. You've been out there fighting hard. You, you need some R&R. So enjoy a couple days of, of R&R. Go to your house. Wash your feet. Isn't that funny? Wash your feet. Go to your house. That's kind of customary to get into the house. Uh, it's like my daughters, take off your shoes, you know. Go to your house and man, go in and see your wife. Go in and see your wife. Uriah said, okay, all right, mm -hmm." but Uriah didn't do that, did he? Uriah said this, he said, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my Lord Joab and the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. You know, when I was in Iraq and we were sending guys back for two weeks, uh r&r back home they often had to come see the chaplain along with some other people before they left the combat zone to come back to the states and we give them our little talk about you know what you ought to do what you shouldn't do and whatever kind of a counseling moment and uh i started bringing this verse out and joking with them a little bit and i would say you know uriah he went back to his house and because we're still out here he refused to go into his wife And so, what you ought to do is you ought to go home and sleep in the spare bedroom the whole two weeks. Uh, None of them had anything to do with that, I'm sure. Can you see what an honorable man Uriah was? What an honorable man. He said, no. Why should I get the benefit of of a nice roof and a nice comfy bed and my wife, a very beautiful wife, why should I get that when... My commander and the, the rest of the boys are out there on the battlefield. No, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna do that. What kind of a man is this? He's an honorable man. So David said, Uh-oh, what, what are we gonna do? Because they told him, David, your eye didn't even go home. He slept outside your door, protecting you. And David said, Oh, plan B. Plan B. I tell you what I'll do. Let's have a party tonight, and we're gonna serve a lot of wine. And you make sure Uriah's cup is never empty because Uriah's gonna, he's gonna go home even if he stumbles home and stumbles into the bedroom. And that was his plan. Oh, what a tangled web we weave. So David's getting desperate now because Uriah wouldn't even do that. He wouldn't even allow himself any pleasure so, David's about to do a desperate thing because, in David's mind, desperate times call for desperate decisions. A thing he knows is immoral, it's a thing he knows is evil. It was plan C. And you know, oftentimes in our life, if the first plan doesn't work, we, we're quick with another one and quick with another one in our attempt to hide our sin. So the Bible says in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Can you imagine carrying your own death warrant? And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. So finally, David's in the clear, right? I mean, David's in the clear. Now David can do the honorable thing himself. And he can, he can help this, this war veteran, this deceased war veteran's pregnant wife and bring her into his home and care for her because she has no one to care for her and then he thought i'm sure he thought he had gotten away with it and months go by months go by and david is just stepping good he's gotten by with a terrible thing but it's behind him now and the man is dead until another knock comes on the door another knock this should have been wooden this time it's the preacher my goodness what's the preacher coming to our house for straighten things up you know when I was a young preacher it was pretty common for us to go to people's houses and sit and talk and eat and talk some more and eat some more it was uh, you know you wonder why a lot of preachers are a little bit on the heavy side is because it's not our fault it's just a lot of pastoral visitation. You might have heard about the, the preacher who went in and visited the, the older widow, and, and uh, he was kind of hungry because it was close to dinner time, and all she had was peanuts there on the coffee table, and uh, as she got up and go to the kitchen, and he started digging into those peanuts, and before you know it, they were all gone, and when she came back, he said, I'm so sorry. I was so hungry. I ate all your peanuts. She said, oh, don't worry about it. I just licked the chocolate off of them anyway. <laughs> Serves him right, huh? when the preacher comes surely there's something wrong there must be a problem here nathan's coming up the sidewalk here comes nathan knocking at the door and david said nathan what are you doing here what do you want nathan says Oh, i just came to visit i just need to talk to you about something that's been going on in your kingdom david said oh sit down and tell me and this is second samuel 12 we turn the page and uh, nathan said well there's two guys that live in your kingdom and uh, they live across the street from one another one's very rich He's got flocks and herd and money and clothes and food, and everything a man could want. He and his family are very, very uh, wealthy. But the, their neighbor across the street is very poor. He's got a family too, but all they have is one little lamb. And this little lamb is, they love it so much, they let it sleep in the house and eat from the, the table. They just love this little lamb. He said to David, uh, one day there was a, was a guy walking down the road, and he was a guest of the rich family. And so they, they took him in and said, hey, we're going to feed you well tonight. And uh, instead of killing one of their own flock, they, he sent a servant over at, the, at dusk and lured the little lamb over to the corner of the yard and snatched the lamb, and they killed the poor man's lamb to feed to the visitor. By this time, the story is getting very, very uh, uh, intense and David no doubt stands up and says, what in the world is this going on in my kingdom? That rich man, that man that did that, he, he deserves to die for this and the, whatever it costs this family, not just in the land, but four times over we're going to take from the rich and give to the poor. This man is guilty. I think nathan was still sitting at this point and i think he got up and i think nathan very calmly pointed his finger and he said david you are the man you had everything god gave you everything you had wives you had money you're the king god has given you everything you could ever want or hope for dream for And yet you steal the wife of Uriah and have him killed. And God is not happy with you, David. God is not happy. Can you imagine how David felt when all this was going down and Nathan was unloading on him? How did you know? Jesus said in Luke 8, For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. Secret sins? For God, there are no secrets. What were the consequences of David's sin? Well, you know them. First, and perhaps the most egregious, was the death of Uriah. The death of Uriah. An honorable man and a good soldier. He was one of the mighty men of David. 2 Samuel 23 tells us that he was numbered among David's top 30 men. There's some great stories about these men fighting their way through the Philistines one time just to get a a cup of water for David out of a certain well that had fresh water, fighting their way through to get that and bring it back. Uriah had been fighting by David's side since the beginning of David's rise to power. He was numbered. He was famous for being one of those men and now he was dead because david devised it secondly anxiety and grief for bathsheba can you imagine the anxiety bathsheba felt when the servants said hey the king needs you and just put a towel on that's all you need can you imagine the anxiety of wait a minute whoa i'm a married woman you know she she wasn't looking at david and can you imagine the grief she felt when she heard your husband was killed in battle a lot of women and men now go through that terrible news from a chaplain i've been i've been on the giving end of that news dressed blues meeting up with another soldier who's really the one who gives the, the news walking down a sidewalk you're spotted before you get to her door, and she goes ballistic, and it's hard news to deliver. Some of the hardest things I've ever done as a chaplain. And Bathsheba heard those words. Imagine what she was facing. We don't often talk about that. And there, of course, was trouble for David. Don't you think David uh, had some sleepless nights, especially in those early days? In fact, I told you Psalm 32 is we think is one of those psalms that sprang forth from this experience of David and we read some of it from our focus verse but listen to these verses for when i kept silent my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long for day and night your hand o oh god was heavy upon me my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer But it wasn't just the inner turmoil that David experienced, the guilt for his sin. Down in 2 Samuel 12, Nathan told him, he says, Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house. Remember Absalom trying to overthrow Absalom the son of David? I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David got a lot of trouble for this, and then, of course, there was the death of the child. Baby was born, seemed to be healthy, but got sick in some way and and died. Sin has consequences, doesn't it? And it's not just you. It's the people around you, people around you. And if you have people around you, you ought to look at them and you ought to look at pictures of them. You ought to have them around you. If you're in your workplace or you're in some place you think you're more susceptible to sin, keep your pictures. Look at your children. Look at your grandchildren. Look at your spouse. And remind yourself, this is, this is why i got to win this battle. This is why i got to win. Sometimes the consequences are physical. Sometimes they're emotional, mental, psychological, which are sometimes worse than the physical. Our soul loses peace. What can we do about it? We can confess it. We can confess it. David's confession for his sin with Bathsheba is found in Psalm 51. Recently I had a man schedule an appointment with me, he wanted to come in and talk to me and share something from his life and he needed to talk and he told me a story much like this story that we just read about. This has been several weeks ago. And um, while it shocked me to some degree, it didn't shock me on the other hand, you know when you live in the world you do the things of the world. And he wanted to know what to do. And I gave him some advice. And then I said, you know what, you need, you need to find Psalm 51. And you need to live there. You just need to live right there. And you stay in there. And you read it and you reread it and you reread it and you reread it. And God will tell you what to do. Just live in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness again. I'll put again in there. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. I think especially we need to live in verses 10, 11, and 12. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Because confession is good for the soul. Why is confession good for the soul? Well, first of all, because it leads to repentance. Repentance is a change of heart. It's a change of mind. Literally, the word means to change your mind, change your direction. You repent, it means to turn around. And it doesn't matter if someone has to confront you or if you come clean on your own, that's usually better. But sometimes it takes someone to say, You are the man, you're the guilty person. Whatever the case, it should lead to repentance. You know, when. God told Samuel he was choosing David as the next king. Samuel wondered why he was the smallest. And God, I told you, God said, don't look at the outward, look at the inward, look at the heart. I look at the heart. And God said, I want a man after my own heart. Was David a man after God's own heart even after this grievous sin that impacted his line forever? Until Jesus, anyway. Anyway. Was David still a man after God's own heart? I think he was. Why? Why can we say that? Because he was quick to repent. He was quick to repent. He took responsibility. He didn't blame Bathsheba. He didn't say, oh, she shouldn't have been dressed that way. She shouldn't have been showing so much skin. Now, ladies, again, this is a battle that as men, you could help some. You could help us by being a little more modest than the rest of culture. I'm trying to get a petition passed that daughters should wear burqas. Would any men sign that with me, any any dads? Until they're married. Then they're their husband's responsibility. Seriously, uh, David didn't do that. Now we could say, but look at our culture, everywhere you turn, every TV show you watch, every commercial, every billboard, everywhere on my phone, it's just well, I'm inundated with pictures that I, I, I want to see but I shouldn't see. It's a battle." Now he didn't do that. He took responsibility. He said, I, I, I shouldn't have done that. I, I was wrong. I was wrong. He also didn't pass the buck on Uriah. He didn't say, well, you know, I didn't kill him. I just sent him into battle. The, the Ammonites killed him. The archers killed him. And he didn't shift his guilt to the weight of his job. Do you know what a hard job I have? Do you know the stress I'm under? Do, do you know how lonely it is to be a king? I, I just need... I need some moments of peace and some intimacy, and I need, do you understand? It's okay for me. You know, I often wonder how Ravi Zacharias uh, justified in his mind. One of the greatest apologists, Christian apologists and theologians of our time, who was found out later to have been engaged in lots of sexual sin, I often wonder how he justified that in his mind. You think maybe he said, oh, I'm under a lot of pressure. There's a lot of people watching me. I need these secret moments. And you know what? There were a lot of people watching him who were disappointed, but, you know, we don't put our faith in man. We put our faith in God who will never let us down. Not even me. Don't put your faith and trust in me. I am only a man, a weak man. So don't put your faith and trust in me. You know, Mark Gunger talks about uh, a person's sexual drive. And maybe I've shared this with you before, but he says, and this is, you know, ladies, to help you understand us a little bit better, and maybe you already do. Uh, Mark Gunger, laugh your way to a better marriage. He says, you know, women go through. Ups and downs, and maybe when they're in their mid-30s, they might peak out. He said, but a man, when a man reaches the age of about 16, his sexual drive hits its peak. And it goes, and it goes, and it goes, and it goes, and then he's dead. (laughs) So, understand But it should lead to repentance and it should compel us to obedience it should compel us to obedience david says that god what god wants to see is a broken heart and a contrite spirit he also wants to see obedience in fact when samuel was scolding king saul david's predecessor samuel said has the lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. If you're not a believer, according to the Bible, once you repent, your obedience should include baptism. That's an act of obedience. It's an act of obedience. That's what the Bible teaches. Jesus said it. It was the first thing Jesus did when he started his ministry and the last thing he commanded before he left this world. And then it should include some other things. If you're already a believer, once you repent, your obedience should include the things you've let slide, things like prayer and fasting and serving, exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in your behavior and listening to the still small voice of God. When he says to move, to move but it's being aware of what God is saying to you in your life and which direction you ought to go. That's obedience. It's not sitting back and letting somebody else toe the line and serve. It's not sitting back and, and absorbing all the junk and garbage that's coming in your mouth. It's doing something about it. It's turning something off. It's standing up and going forward for him. Finally, confession is good for the soul because it brings God's forgiveness We need forgiveness, don't we? That's a beautiful thing. You could mess up royally just like David. I mean, he was at the highest place and he failed literally royally. Maybe your sins aren't as public and they're not as grievous and maybe they didn't result in the death of a child or the death of somebody else or anxiety or killing a family. But you still need forgiveness because without it, You'll never see God. And so it starts with confession. It starts with confession. And God says, I'll give you forgiveness. If we are faithful to confess our sins, He is faithful to forgive those sins. 1 John 1 9. Let's stand and pray. God, thank you for the gospel that leads us to the truth and the reason why we need to confess Jesus as Lord and receive his forgiveness. I pray, God, that you would help us to do that, to deal with our, the things in our heart that we've been hiding away that have been troubling our sleep and our soul and come clean before you today. And perhaps we, we need to come clean before others. Lord, that's my prayer. Give us the courage to follow through in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be standing over here. Joel's over here. If you want to come talk about your next step.